During 1454, Richard, Duke of York, had acquired some very powerful allies, notably the Neville family. Their prosperity, perhaps even their very survival, now depended upon York's continued dominance in the government. But in December 1454, King Henry VI surprised everyone by recovering his wits, and with the king's mind and body restored, York was no longer needed as protector. The king's recovery was received with rejoicing, and why not indeed? The king's illness had been a personal tragedy, and now he would get to meet his young son Edward, and the son would grow up having some sort of relationship with his father. What could be better? Well, in normal circumstances, the recovery to good health of a king would have been celebrated on a political level too, for it should have brought certainty and leadership. But of course, in Henry VI's case, the opposite happened. Where there was stability under York's steady, though partisan, control, there was now discord among the leading nobles, overseen by a monarch whose failure to manage his greatest subjects was already manifest for all to see. The removal of York from power was followed in early February 1455 by the release of Edmund Beaufort, Duke of Somerset, from the Tower. Soon after, Richard Neville, Earl of Salisbury, gave up the pivotal office of Chancellor in a council now once more dominated by Somerset and his own northern allies, Henry Percy, Earl of Northumberland, and Lord Thomas Clifford. What were York and the Nevilles to do in the face of this catastrophe? Since they expected the Queen and Somerset to move swiftly against them, the first thing they did was to leave London in haste. But what then for these disaffected but powerful noblemen? They had tasted great power in the state. The question was, were they prepared to relinquish it? Even now, we could see that it was a no-brainer, as it must have appeared to them. Several times York had tried to remove his enemy Somerset by political means. And each time the king had restored his favourite to power. Persuasion had not worked. Perhaps it was time for coercion. Somerset, however, with the king once again in his pocket, was equally determined to destroy his enemies. The Percys, too, were eager to seize the chance to annihilate Neville power. Thus, in April 1455, York, Salisbury and his son Warwick were summoned to a great council to be held on the 21st of May. This was not to be a proper parliament where the Commons might favour York. Instead, the only commoners present would be court nominees. Nor was it to be held in London, where York was popular, but far away from the centre of government in Leicester. The declared purpose of the council was to provide for the king's safety. York and his allies assumed that, in the eyes of the court party, they represented the threat to his safety. For York and the Nevilles to attend the council would have been political, perhaps actual, suicide. But equally, they could not just ignore it. For it was more than likely that a refusal to attend would simply lead to condemnation in their absence. 
Perhaps York had already decided, after Somerset's return to favour, that he must resort to force. Or perhaps it was the summons that made him do so. Either way, he and his allies began to raise an army in the north. By May they had put together an armed force which they hoped would demonstrate their power and enable them to overthrow Somerset's government. Somerset, who still assumed that he could remove York and the rest by political means, seemed singularly unprepared for this resort to force, and only started to raise an army when York was already on his way south. On the 21st of May, Somerset decided to take King Henry and the leading councillors out of London and head for St Albans. Those who accompanied the King were by no means all supporters of Somerset. Yes, Northumberland, Clifford and his other close allies were prominent, but so too were others well disposed towards York or the Nevilles, notably the Earl of Devon and Salisbury's own brother, William Neville. There were also some heavyweight neutrals, like the Duke of Buckingham, who was loyal to the King, but would not gladly take up arms to support Somerset. So, what is the situation on the 21st of May? The York Neville army is heading south at pace, while the court is making a slow progress towards St Albans, where it will await the arrival of the elements of a royal army hastily summoned by Somerset to meet York's challenge. There is no suggestion that York and the Nevilles aimed to overthrow the King. York's chief aim was to remove Somerset permanently, and the Nevilles too had their own specific targets. The odd thing about the sequence of events that followed is that all the urgency and sense of crisis seems to have come from York's side. On several occasions he sent letters to the King, even in the middle of the night of the 21st, 22nd of May at Watford, protesting his loyalty and asking for a council including those of whom his faction approved. But the letters bore no fruit because Somerset and the Queen had already convinced the King that York intended to seize the throne. York and his allies followed so close behind his messengers that when the King approached St Albans on the morning of the 22nd of May he found York there already. York's forces outnumbered the King's significantly and there was confusion too amongst the councillors attending on Henry as to what exactly he should do. The moderate Duke of Buckingham advised the King that York was only trying to exert pressure, as he had done in 1452, and would not press matters to a fight. Somerset, though, perhaps understanding his old opponent rather better, insisted that York would use force if the King did not accept his terms. Buckingham suggested that they should continue into the town of St Albans rather than preparing for a pitched battle. There they could continue to negotiate with York to reach a settlement. Buckingham's advice was utterly reasonable but completely wrong. What he failed to consider was that though York had conceded without resorting to battle in 1452, the result had been an ignominious political defeat for York and the Duke was not prepared to risk a repeat of that. This time, one way or another, Somerset would have to go.
While Henry moved his men into the town, heralds passed between the two sides, as was customary, in the hope of avoiding any actual fighting. York's message was consistent and imperative. Hand over Somerset or else. Since the king was not willing to meet this demand, the outcome of the negotiations was inevitable, and the royal army prepared to defend the town. Though the exchange of heralds continued, it must have been obvious to York that the defences were being strengthened. Any further delay and assaulting the town would just be more difficult and more costly in lives. So at ten o'clock in the morning, York ordered the advance. St Albans, ringed by houses and with its entry roads barricaded, proved very difficult for York's soldiers to breach. The royal commanders were confident that they could repel all attacks and many did not even bother putting on their armour. The belief appeared to be that York, once his military assault was blunted, would return to negotiation. However, they reckoned without the determination of Richard Neville, Earl of Warwick. Thwarted at the barricades, Warwick sent his men through the back gardens of several houses with orders to break through and create a breach there into the centre of St Albans. The sudden arrival of Warwick's men inside the town caused havoc and men scattered before them. During the skirmish, King Henry himself and the Duke of Buckingham received wounds before scurrying to hide wherever they could. The victory was swift and overall the casualties were few, perhaps under a hundred. But three deaths were very significant. Somerset, Northumberland and Clifford were all dead, the only nobles to die. Somerset in a last desperate stand at the Castle Inn. Whilst his army plundered the town, York went to meet the king. King Henry, though York was kneeling before him, had little choice but to pardon him and all those who had fought against him. The following day the king was escorted back to London by the victors, whose entry into the city had much in common with a Roman triumph. The skirmish which has become known as the First Battle of St Albans may have been relatively small, but its impact was enormous. The key enemies of York and the Nevilles had been killed. They would not be coming back this time. Within days, York and his supporters were in total control of the government and the chief offices of state. St Albans may have been a minor battle, but it was a major coup d'etat. York had risked everything on the streets of St Albans, and, on the face of it, his victory was absolute. The king was forced to accept him as his leading counsellor, and it seemed that York was in an unassailable position. In one short but brutal exchange, it seemed that all-out civil war had been averted, because one faction had been utterly shorn of its leadership. York's success appeared to be set in stone. But then, 15th century England was a funny old place.